to Paul's letter to Colossians. And uh, in the, the Pew Bible, that's page 11. I wrote down something that makes no sense, but I have to make sure. Um, yes, circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. The words of Paul to the Colossians, the words of God to all people. Pray with me, please. Lord, you spoke to the lips of men in exile. Ezekiel. And you had him speak in a vision to dry bones. That the word would make them stand up. Alive. Whole. after that. And we're pleased that we ask that you would work with us in our hearts and from us for the hearts of others by the preaching of your word now. That as you were generous in exile that you would be generous here in your son and work as he deserves all our hope is cast on him. Pray in his name. Christians, listen. You have been buried with Jesus in baptism in which you were also raised up with him. Again, Christians, listen. You have been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. This is your glory. In this letter, Paul is rejecting the confusing question, am I a good enough Christian? Now, baptism itself can be turned into exactly what Paul is opposing. Paul is writing against a possible counterfeit of the Christian faith that combines tradition and human responsibility 
into a lie that refuses God's grace. Now, much to our surprise, Paul begins responding, he starts with baptism. He starts with baptism by talking about circumcision, the Old Testament counterpart to baptism. He brings up circumcision in order to describe, to describe how God delivers you from the oppressive powers. So, we'll get to baptism last by following his details about circumcision second. But first we need to understand a little bit about the rulers and authorities over whom Christ is head. The false teaching offered to the Colossians is enthralled with spiritual powers, invisible forces that man encounters in seeking to know God. Now, when we hear spiritual powers, we think of the devil and demons and angels, personal entities like ourselves. Our society largely writes this off as mythological figments but Paul certainly teaches us that they are real. And the people influencing the Colossians, oh, they agree. In fact, they're fixated on exalted, angelic creatures. But Paul is more concerned with impersonal spiritual forces, invisible realities that press in on human life, that provoke and enslave sinful people. Three common ones in Paul's teaching are the law, death, and sin. Paul describes these as determining human life. He says death reigns like a king. Certainly, not all personal, but taking power over all people. He speaks of sin as conquering and ruling and directing people. Now, one of the other spiritual forces that Paul speaks of is named here when Paul speaks of baptism, the flesh. It's not uncommon to hear Paul's ideas about the flesh in modern Christian conversation. We speak of resisting the flesh, like a wrestler or a seducer. People will speak of sinful actions as acting in the flesh or being in the flesh. You hear Paul speak this way in Romans 8. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about the flesh as an opponent of the Holy Spirit. He contrasts the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, he's not simply talking about having a body. Instead, the flesh, as a power in the world, is human nature corrupted and hostile to God. It is a power that dominates the sinner. And the flesh is a power from which Christ has set you free. And this is why Paul brings up circumcision. He speaks about circumcision to remind you that you must be set free. You can't get yourself loose. And to show you that, in fact, you can be set free, just not by your own ability. You must be set free, and you can be set free. And baptism into Christ is deliverance from the flesh. Just heard his words. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Paul says 
that the Colossians had been circumcised, not by human hands. Christian, believer in the Lord Jesus, you have been circumcised without human hands. This is an important element in Paul's teaching. Romans 2 comes to a climax saying, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter of the law. And in Philippians 3, Paul uses this as a banner for the glory of the Christian. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You need to understand this. You need to understand that you must be set free, you can be set free, that by faith in Christ, you indeed have been set free from the flesh. Don't, don't you want a circumcised heart? I can't do that. Is it possible? Yes! There is a circumcision without hands. Paul here asserts four things about the circumcision. And really, these are four parts of a story. The first part began with Abraham. Physical circumcision was an, an outward sign of faith to God. But it never was an empty custom or an act of magic. The physical sign established an obligation. Each person must circumcise his heart. The first part of the story becomes bolder in the book of Deuteronomy. There, there's a, middle, a powerful middle point between the recounting of God's mercies in the journey from Egypt and, and the bulky laws for living in the promised land. In between there, in the middle is a cycle of exhortations from God for the people to be faithful. And the very first of these, these crafted wake-up calls climaxes with this. Deuteronomy 10.6 Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Get hold of your heart. Turn it right. Like carefully wielding a sharp edge, take out your stubborn resistance to God. Deftly remove the power of the flesh. Yes. There is a circumcision without hands. <laughs> this is the second part of the story. At the end of Deuteronomy, after the appeals and the law, God speaks in the most devastating way. He says that in the future, Israel will fail. Israel will be overwhelmed by her resistance and hostility to God. At that time, God will bring enemies against them, and enemies will carry them into exile. Yet still, God will be merciful. Deuteronomy 30, he says, he will bring them back from exile, quote, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will know the love, you will, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may You know that you must be set free from the flesh. 
you hear that you, in fact, can be set free from the flesh. It is a promise. When will this happen? How can this happen? It is actually harder than you think. The second part of the story that begins with that promise, the end of Deuteronomy, stretches into the exile. God speaks again to his people, and he magnifies both the problem and the promise. Ezekiel spoke for God in Babylon in exile, and he does not speak of circumcision. Hear the word of the Lord through Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The first part of the story is the command of circumcision. And the second part is the promise of circumcision. You must have circumcision in both body and heart. In the second part of the story, you fail to free yourself from the stubborn hostility toward God that Paul calls the flesh. Then God promises circumcision without hands. Without hands. The second part of the story, it feels like an impossibility. It is only Jesus who said, who say with such boldness, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. But something like a knife is not enough. Circumcision is not enough. Not even circumcision of your heart. You must have a new heart. But Ezekiel goes even further. The problem and the promise are more than even a heart transplant. In Ezekiel 37, God takes the prophet in a vision into a valley full of dry bones. Dry bones. The sound of wind and, and a rattle. Ezekiel says, Then the Lord said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am. Now, it may seem that we've wandered a long way from the city of Colossae. And these Christians confronted with, with Jewish ideas in the mix of first century mysticism. But there in Colossae, we, we're touching the third part of the story. You see, the people returned from exile. For a time, Israel had an independent kingdom. But then Rome crushed them. Was the exile even over? Wait, 
look around, are the hearts circumcised? Do they have new hearts? Do they look like life from the dead? No. The Jews of Palestine, we read about them in the Gospels. They stubbornly rejected Jesus. Jesus himself speaks of them as slaves to sin. Slaves of the flesh. This great power. The Jews of Colossae, they stubbornly refused the gospel of Jesus. Instead, they clung to a tradition of practices and ideas handed down from the generations instead of the promised circumcision without hands. Instead of that promise, they clung to the Old Testament holy days and rules about clean foods and far-fetched claims of worshiping with the angels with careful and complicated practices they were determined to be good enough. Am I good enough? You see, there in Colossae, that's the question that's seeping in the water, that's coming up seeming reasonable to those Christians. Maybe we need something more here. Because, wait, am I a good enough Christian? But the Colossians' very ambition is the reason to ignore such philosophy and empty deception confused. The ambition of those Colossian Jews with their philosophy is the reason to ignore such philosophy and empty deception. Because the fourth part of the story has arrived. Circumcision was commanded. Circumcision without hands was promised. The return from exile left them with their stony hearts. Finally and Bodily, the fourth part of the story arrived with the baby Jesus. All the fullness of deity dwells bodily in that infant. Please listen. Um, it may be more than you can grapple with, but you Christian believers in Jesus were circumcised without hands, putting off the flesh by the circumcision, what does he say? By the circumcision of Christ. Yes. Bodily. He bodily submitted to that procedure as an infant. He took on all the obligations of his people. He submitted to obeying all God's law in their place. He took on God's covenant with no stubbornness or hostility towards God. As a child, as a child, the mighty one was held still by adults for the signs of these lies. And in the gardens of Gethsemane, he collapsed on the ground, faithfully taking on, on himself the exile deserved by his people. He died and rose again, bringing forth 
a brand new people delivered from sin and all the powers that crush sinners. The Lord Jesus is your heart. The Lord Jesus is your resurrection. Christian, believe in the Lord Jesus. You have been circumcised without hands. How did you get a new heart? How did your bones rise up to a new life? All this is true of you, says Paul, quote, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. Baptism is not a sign of an obligation you cannot fulfill. It's not even a sign of a promise beyond imagination that you are waiting for God to fulfill. Your life in Christ is not a life of trying to be good enough. It's not even waiting for God to make you good enough. Your baptism is a sign that Christ's death and resurrection set you free from the flesh, from sin, from death, and all the powers at odds with God's love and glory in your life. It is not simply a sign, a demonstration, or an illustration. It is a seal, a divine authentication. This is not just truth for all mankind to reckon with. This has overtaken your life. This is the kingdom you live in and the God who calls you. He knows that you deserve death and that only life can save you. Jesus did that in the body. And by faith, everything expressed in baptism is yours. I know. This is not how we commonly speak of baptism. We are stunted. God speaks to us more wondrously than we have heard. We really don't know how to speak of these things in many ways. It sounds wonderful, but maybe wrong. Quote, by baptism you received a new heart and a new life. We recited Westminster Larger Catechism 167. I am not giving you some far-out teaching or superstitious practice. This is mainline Reformation, Westminster Confession, Presbyterian stuff. And we'll see more in the weeks to come. I want you to relish what Jesus has done. I want you to stand up and go, wait, if I'm free, how am I free? It, really? I want this clear depiction of what you have in Christ to make you go ferreting and looking for where in the how and the what. And you should have questions. And you should besiege your elders. Explain things to me. Show me things. Because this is more wonderful than you have thought. And this is so odd a turn. Baptism? Really? Really? It is a much neglected duty, says our confession, to improve it. Please, this week, read 
the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And if what I'm doing is provocative, well, I think he's just going to jump up and make you go, wait a second. Because he speaks this way even more richly there. I simply, as a man bound to God's word, must insist. This is what Paul says about baptism. He says more, but he does not say less. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism has this powerful meaning because baptism is combined with faith. The reason to be baptized into Christ is faith in the divine Father who raised Jesus from the dead. You believe that the eternal Son became the obedient servant and the faithful man, the one who fulfilled all your possible obligations to God and the one who delighted God and so received the resurrection as his reward for you. You trust in Christ who did the work of salvation and you trust in the Father who celebrated and crowned that work with glory. Baptism is not how you are delivered from the flesh, sin, and death. But baptism is how you will best understand that salvation. And baptism is how you will deeply enjoy it. That is the sum and substance of, approving, of improving your baptism. You aren't adding to your baptism. You aren't trying to make it and you good enough. You're drawing up out of it all the benefits that Christ gives to those who trust in, them, in him. Those who have died with him and been raised with him. Sinners received as righteous by God himself. Let us pray. Father, please. I pray that you would give us great joy in your son. And that we would praise you vastly for him and that you would stir us up to recognize the greatness of your gift your generosity your providing for us your enriching us in him Father please fill our faith up with the Son in whom you delight and whom you sent and has taken up our cause and brought us to you in victory. Pray in his name. Amen. Please stand and sing hymn number 644. May the mind of Christ my Savior.